This is an ABC podcast. Good morning. This is Pacific Beat on ABC Radio Australia. Today on the show, a new disaster monitoring centre for the Pacific opens in China, a sign of Beijing's increasing interest in the region. But one former diplomat says, whatever the reason, it's good news for the Pacific. Especially considering the Pacific region is one of the most disaster regions around the world. So we should view this as a positive development. And Fiji's new government meets with West Papuan independence activists, sparking fresh hopes for formal recognition of the contested Indonesian territory. I think this is the first West Papua delegation received by the Prime Minister, Honourable Prime Minister Rambuka. We also keep you updated on the outcomes of that special Pacific Leaders meeting that wrapped up in Fiji on Friday. All that and more today on the show. I'm Priyanka Srinivasan. So glad to have your company. First, though, an Australian professor and two of his Papua New Guinean colleagues have been freed after more than a week being held hostage in a remote part of the country's highlands. While the hostages have all been safely returned to the capital, Port Moresby, the hunt for the criminals continues. Money was paid to ensure the safe release of the academic group, but nowhere near more, the more than $1 million originally requested. BNG correspondent Natalie Whiting reports. After a week in the wilderness, the three hostages stepped off a plane in Port Moresby and were greeted by PNG's Prime Minister, James Marape. I did apologise to the professor and the, and the two uh, Papua New Guinea hostages for the incident. Australian professor Bryce Barker and his PNG colleagues, Tepsi Benny and Jamina Haro, were then whisked away in a waiting car. The three researchers, along with another team member, Kathy Alex, who was released three days earlier, had been completing fieldwork for an archaeological research project through the University of Southern Queensland in a remote part of the highlands near Mount Bosavi when they were taken hostage. It was a, a random opportunities crime that took place, but something that I condemned in the very strongest term possible. A ransom was paid to ensure their safe release, but it was far less than what was originally demanded by the gang that kidnapped them. The criminals remain at large, for now. Dozens of police and defence personnel have been flown into the area in recent days. The country's police commissioner, David Manning, says the operation will continue now that the hostages are out. Uh, We're very much uh, committed to ensuring that those who are responsible are held to account. It's not just a law and order issue, it's also political. While the plane was in the air bringing Professor Barker and his colleagues back to Port Moresby, the terminal where it was set to land changed, seemingly to allow Prime Minister James Marape to welcome them and give a press conference. There was a brief traffic jam as police, diplomatic and media vehicles quickly moved locations. My government placed the highest ever budget to police this year. And so we will not rest. This is just the first phase of the operation. Second phase continues, third phase continues to ensure that those who engage in criminal enterprise by the barrel of the gun uh, are facing the laws of our country. While high-profile kidnap for ransom cases are rare in PNG, 
This gang and others have long been terrorising villages in the Mount Basavi region. President of the Basavi local level government, Daffy Mio, sent his apologies to the families and called for action. The suspect must face the full force of the law. Villagers assisted with passing on information and protecting another foreigner who happened to be in the area. Will there be ongoing security support for the villagers, many of whom are very concerned that there could be retribution or further criminal attacks on them following this incident? Look, I won't go into the details of this ongoing operation, but uh, yes, we have taken those concerns on board. Let me tell all the criminals, police firepower is always higher than uh, criminal firepower. I will not tolerate this sort of nonsense anymore. And so, uh, yes, up there, police will remain, uh, soldiers will remain. Mr Marape says they will not rest until the matter is resolved. That was a Natalie Whiting, our correspondent in Port Moresby, with that report. Pacific Beat. China has opened a new centre for managing natural disasters in the Pacific. The centre, which opened in China's Guangdong province last week, will reportedly provide Pacific countries with assistance including monitoring for disaster risks and conducting rescue operations. It comes amid growing strategic competition in the region between China and US allies following the signing of a security deal between Beijing and Solomon Islands last year. Reporter Mackenzie Smith which spoke with former Chinese diplomat Han Yang about the project and began by asking him how significant the new center is for the Pacific. It signals uh, China's uh, further commitment to provide um, disaster assistance and uh, aid to the Pacific region. And so this is uh, perhaps a first step and there will be more investment coming, coming up later. And I think uh, it's well from the from the viewpoint of the Pacific uh, countries, it, they they should welcome the, the any aid they can um, obtain, especially uh, considering the Pacific region is one of the most disaster-ridden uh, uh, regions around the world. So, so it's a positive. We should view this as a positive development uh, that will will help uh, the Pacific region's development. Does this mark a shift from other infrastructure assistance China has been providing the Pacific? Well, certainly it's, it's a more uh, pragmatic approach uh, to, to aid and development program China can provide. And, and I think what Australia need to uh, understand is that uh, those countries are, can make these decisions uh, regardless of geopolitical considerations because for those uh, the countries are are mostly underdeveloped and they desperate need uh, aid and development and disaster assistance. So China obviously exploiting uh, this situation and providing uh, the, the aid program in the best way that they can that, that can achieve their overall strategic goals. So, well, we, we as Australia, as partner for the region, we, we shouldn't uh, be paranoid, uh, I think, about uh, these kind of uh, aid program. We should allow those countries to make the best decision for themselves and in, in the meantime, further increase and develop our uh, aid response in terms of disaster management to the region. Is it surprising that the centre is based in Guangdong rather than in the Pacific? Well, I think this is just a first step uh, to uh, to set up a centre in China with, uh, to coordinate the further efforts. Uh, undoubtedly, in the future, they will establish uh, 
such uh, similar centers in the in the region. And I think what China's uh, because the country is uh, is vast and uh, resource uh, resourceful, they uh, normally assign uh, individual provinces to be in charge in a particular foreign aid program. So obviously, Guangdong is uh, is the one of the richest province in China. So, so they has the capacity and the resource to fund these programs. So that's probably, and also the, it's, it's one of the closest they can in terms of the geographical uh, distance to, to the Pacific region. So that's why uh, Guangzhou is, uh, is chosen as the base. That was a former Chinese diplomat Han Yang speaking there to reporter Mackenzie Smith. You're listening to Pacific Beat. I'm Priyanka Srinivasan. Pacific leaders have wrapped their special meeting in Fiji and have selected a new leader for the regional diplomatic body. We have today appointed Mr. Baron Dilovesi Wanda as the next Secretary General of the Pacific Island Forum, effective from 2024. That was a Pacific Islands Forum Chair and Fiji's Prime Minister, Sidiveni Rambuka, making the announcement on Friday at the close of the special leaders' retreat. Nauru's Baron Wonga will take over the reins as Forum Head from Henry Puna next year. The former president's appointment is expected to bring unease to China. Mr. Wonga famously clashed with a Chinese diplomat and accused Beijing of bullying smaller countries. Nauru is also one of only four Pacific countries that recognize Taiwan, but his leadership also marks an end to a bitter dispute within the forum after Micronesian countries threatened to give up their membership unless one of their representatives was chosen as Secretary General. The crisis culminated in Kiribati leaving the Pacific Islands Forum, but Kiribati is back after Pacific leaders cemented a deal known as the Suva Agreement on Friday, formally bringing unity back to the forum. Here's Prime Minister Rambuka again. I think I speak for all leaders, I'm sure I speak for all leaders, when I say that I'm very, very pleased that the solidarity of the foreign family has been fully restored. To that end, I can confirm that the President of Kiribati, <coughs> President Mamau, has this afternoon signed on the Sumba Agreement. Other concessions and deals were also made to Micronesia to bring them back into the fold. We have appointed Dr. Filimoni Manoni, a nominee of the Republic of the Marshall Islands, as the Pacific Ocean Commissioner. We have agreed to the establishment of a sub-regional office <clears throat> for the Pacific Island Forum in the Republic of Kiribati. And we have agreed to the establishment of a standalone office of the Pacific Ocean Commissioner in the Republic of Palau. And forum unity wasn't the only item on the agenda last week. Members of the Pacific Islands Forum also expressed deep concern about Japan's decision to dump contaminated wastewater from its Fukushima nuclear plant into the Pacific Ocean. Here's the upcoming forum chair, Cook Island's Mark Brown, who recently returned from a trip to Japan. I'm happy that uh, the outcome of those meetings is for more intense dialogue to take place between uh, scientific experts on the Japanese government side and also our panel of experts uh, on the forum side. We're further pleased that uh, we would request the International Atomic Energy Agency to be part of those deliberations. 
so that our panel will be able to provide us, the leaders of the Pacific, with an assurance of any actions that will be taken in terms of discharging water into the Pacific, that it will be done safely. And that was Cook Islands Prime Minister Mark Brown there. And the next Pacific Islands Forum leaders meeting will be held in his country, Cook Islands, later this year. It's time to find out what other news is making headlines around the Pacific region. And to do that, we're joined by Kyle Evans. Good morning, Kyle. Good morning, Priyanka. Good weekend? Yeah, a bit of, uh, bit of retail therapy, <laughs> but no, very good weekend. And uh, speaking of retail therapy, it seems like the U.S. is looking for land in Vanuatu for an embassy. Well, po- possibly you've got a story for us about the U.S. eyeing an embassy in Vanuatu. Is that right? Yeah, this is really interesting, actually. So uh, the U.S. embassy in Port Moresby is actually confirmed to the Daily Post uh, that U.S. Congress has asked the State Department to explore uh, the opening of a diplomatic facility in Vanuatu, which I means uh, means an embassy. Um, and it's something they've been exploring for, for some time now, apparently. Um, reports at one point actually stated the US were looking for a property at around 10 hectares uh, in size. However, according to the article, uh, PNG US representatives had planned to visit Vanuatu, but that visit uh, is no longer taking place. I'm not sure why that is. But uh, it, ultimately, it does appear that uh, it's, it's further evidence that uh, evidence is looking uh, that the US is looking to expand their footprint. Yes, very interesting. Um, of course, that Solomon Islands embassy just reopened earlier this year. I mean, very a few few weeks ago, I believe. Um, and yes, I guess it comes as as we um, covered with China opening that climate center uh, on its land in in Guangdong province. Um, we have the US also trying to make its mark on the region um, mm. opening these embassies. So very interesting to see what will come up um, with that embassy in Vanuatu and what that means for its relationship with the region as well. These embassies get constructed, but um, what do we see come out of it? So it'll Yeah, be interesting. that's right. It'd be interesting to know the history between the two countries, if the US has had much to do with Vanuatu in the past or, or anything like that. But, um, but yeah, it, it very much is feeling like a competition at the moment between uh, between China and the US. Indeed. Um, and now let's head to some sporting news in Fiji. Fiji has named a new rugby union head coach. Who is it? Yeah, so Simon Rao-Louis, uh, he's been named head coach of the uh, Flying Fijians uh, and will likely lead the side uh, into the World Cup later this year. I think it's safe to say he will lead the side uh, into the World Cup later this year, uh, which I believe has been played in France. So uh, Fiji Rugby Union made the announcement uh, over the weekend. He replaces Vern Cotter, who resigned uh, earlier this month after an extensive application process. So, so yeah, he comes pretty well credentialed. Um, former general manager, high performance, uh, sorry, former high performance manager of the team. So, obviously, very familiar with the program. Uh, has also played for Fiji. Actually, captained them over uh, forty-three Test matches. So, very, yeah, very experienced uh, as a player as well. Oh, very interesting stuff. I'm, I'm sure you might touch on it on the sports show uh, every Friday here on Pacific Beat. We have a special sports edition and we'll be covering um, all the action. I know last week you also covered um, some, some movements in Fiji rugby um, as well with um, the new NRL boss being a former rugby player from Fiji. Is that yeah, right? Weiss Kativarata. So he's uh, he's taken over coaches uh, Fiji's rugby league side. So yeah, a few... Uh, Union a few- League, it's all happening. Happening. A few changes across the across the different codes at the moment. Yeah, very interesting. Kyle, thank you for the stories. Not a problem. That was a reporter, Kyle Evans, bringing us the latest from around the Pacific.
Um, and if you do want to hear any of those stories that we touched on from previous episodes, you can head to our ABC Pacific website um, to find out more. But do stick around because we only are only uh, halfway through the show. So we've got more stories for you coming up here on Pacific Beat. Um, we'll be looking at this very talented uh, woman from Solomon Islands. Uh, she's a designer climate change activist and all sorts of things and recently has become an American fellowship winner participant. Uh, she's joined the Emerson Collective. I'm, of course, talking about Millicent Barty. We'll be talking to her about what exactly the Emerson Collective is, why it's important, and what she hopes to do during that fellowship. And right after this upcoming break, we'll also look at why Tide might be turning for recognition of West Papua. Independence activists recently met in Fiji with the government there. We'll be hearing what the outcome was of those talks. Rugby League is back. He scores an icing on the cake prize. And ABC Radio Australia brings you all the action. Right up the hay diddle diddle. Upset City. Wow, wow, wow. Every game across a massive season. Boy, oh boy, oh boy. Stream online at ABC Pacific. Or listen live right here on ABC Radio Australia, your home of Rugby League in the Pacific. See you later, alligator. You are listening to Pacific Beat here on ABC Radio Australia. It is a Monday morning. Hope you're easing into the week. Hope we're making it a bit easier for you on this show. My name is Priyanka Srinivasan. And could the tide be turning on West Papua's campaign for the recognition and sovereignty after decades of Indonesian rule? Fiji's Prime Minister Sitiveni Rambuka said he would support the United Liberation Movement for West Papua, joining a sub-regional body, that's the Melanesian Spearhead Group. It would be a controversial big step towards formal recognition of the contended state, which the group has been considering taking for 10 years now. But as Caroline Tiraman reports, there's still strong hesitation among leaders to change the status quo around Indonesia's claim, claims over its Papua province. It's been a struggle for the United Liberation Movement of West Papua to gain political recognition from Melanesia's big members, Papua New Guinea and Fiji. Over the past decade, both countries have opted to continue recognizing Indonesia's sovereignty. But a change of government in Fiji has also, for the first time, given the ULMWP a meeting with the Prime Minister. This time uh, we are welcomed by uh, Honorable Prime Minister with the open arm. Benny Wenda is the president of the ULMWP, a group campaigning for autonomy for the Papua region. I think this is the uh, first West Papua delegation received by the Prime Minister, Honorable uh, Prime Minister Rambuka. The group has an application for full membership, has been in the hands of the Melanesian Spearhead Group for over 10 years and should now be given serious consideration. The Melanesian Spearhead Group includes Fiji, the FLNKS of New Caledonia, Papua New Guinea, Solomon Islands and Vanuatu, while Indonesia has been an associate member since 2015. West Papua and Timor-Leste have observer status within the MSG. But 
What does this meeting with Fiji's Prime Minister Rambuka mean for the West Papuan cause? Dr. Camelia Webb Gannon is coordinator of the West Papua project of the University of Wollongong in New South Wales. The fact that Rambuka has decided to meet with Benny Wenda as the leader of the ULMWP is showing that the that the Fijian um, leadership is definitely taking a new perspective and a renewed interest in West Papua in a way that Fiji hasn't done for some time now. So Fiji and, and Papua New Guinea have, for the past few years, taken the stance that they respect Indonesia's sovereignty over West Papua. And because of that stance, there's been a distinct um, silence or, or lack of comment about the plight that West Papuans are facing with regard to human rights violations in their territory. But with Rambuka agreeing to to meet Benny Wenda, he's um, showing that even if they might not be supporting West Papuan independence, at least they're willing to look at the situation in West Papua and acknowledge that there are grave human rights abuses taking place and that it's definitely something that Melanesian countries are interested in addressing. So I have seen that Marape from PNG and Rambuka have said, look, we still do respect Indonesia's claims to sovereignty in West Papua. But what Benny Wenda is trying to do is negotiate for full membership status of West Papua within the Melanesian Spearhead Group. And this has been something that has been blocked for nearly 10 years now by some of the Melanesian countries who are now, I mean, Vanuatu is now saying, well, it was a mistake to give Indonesia membership to the Melanesian Spearhead Group. Um, and Indonesia, because it's had a foot in the door within the MSG for the past few years, it's been able to influence um, Fijian policy on West Papua and Papua New Guinean policy on West Papua. Well, this is good news that it looks like the new um, government in Fiji is willing to reconsider its stance on West Papua. Publicly, both Papua New Guinea and Fiji are maintaining their current stance on Papua autonomy. This is PNG Prime Minister James Marape speaking at the media event in Suva. West Papua has been an issue uh, that has resurfaced many times in the margins of uh, PIF uh, meetings and engagements. From Papua New Guinea context, uh, we sympathize with uh, our Melanesians on the other side, but there are more Melanesians also on the other side than just West Papua. Uh, easily, possibly over 10 million Melanesians deep also into uh, Indonesian sovereignty. Uh, at the moment, uh, West Papua remains, uh, for us, a, a part and parcel of the uh, Indonesia. Indonesia. Uh, they've made many, many uh, you know, representations to us and to all Pacific Island nations. From PIF uh, context, we acknowledge if there was any human rights issues, it will be dealt with from a human rights context. Uh, but in terms of sovereignty issue, uh, West Papua, from PNG context, remains part of Indonesia. Fiji's Prime Minister, Sitiveni Rambuka, also echoed similar sentiments. We, we share the same uh, uh, respect for the sovereignty of, the, of Indonesia. Australia's stance on West Papua, too, 
has not changed. Its foreign minister Penny Wong says her country will maintain the status quo. Well, look, uh, Australia, under successive governments, has made its position clear. You know, we we recognise Indonesian sovereignty in relation to, to Papua, uh, and that's a position that reflects uh, a bipartisan position and a position that reflects. Uh, our undertakings and commitments under the Lombok Treaty, and we remain committed to that. Despite these public positions, Mr. Wenda feels major changes are happening in the background, and there is momentum in the campaign for Papua's autonomy. Today, many many organisations are here, based in here. Now they are we are big meeting. They stand for the full membership and demand the, all the Melanesian leaders to give West Papua full membership. That was ULMWP, that's the United Liberation Movement for West Papua, President Benny Wenda there, ending that story from the ABC's Caroline Tiraman. You're listening to Pacific Beat. This year, Sydney is hosting World Pride, the biggest LGBTQIA plus festival globally, with thousands of people attending hundreds of events marking the occasion. Australian Indigenous singer and songwriter Jessie Lloyd is part of the celebrations. Yesterday, she performed songs collected from the Torres Strait. Most of them are fairly well-known songs, sort of like common folk songs in the community. And I sort of um, do new renditions of them. Some sort of I expand them by telling the story of the song or I expand them in translating the song. But, yeah, there's some amazing stories behind each of these songs. And how did you did you collect the songs? How did you make the decisions? And did you travel to the areas to collect them and talk to the community? Or how did it all come about? A lot of the songs... Um, I kind of knew from childhood and then sort of others I learnt uh, from family. When I was actually researching the Mission Songs Project, I I realised that a lot of songs from the Torres Straits was quite influential on the mainland. Yeah, so I did spend a lot of time going up to the Torres Straits, going up to Thursday Island and just finding out, you know, the different variations of each song, uh, the, the origins of the song, who the families were or the composer was behind the song and um, also making sure about learning how to sing the songs properly and to pronounce the, the language words properly. That was all all a big part of it. And, yeah, there's a lot of consultation with elders to do all that. And you've said that every song has a history behind it or a story behind it. Could you maybe pick one and tell us a bit about it? Well, I guess the most well-known song that's on the Island Songs Project album is a song called Tabanaba. Let's maybe listen just to a snippet from that song. And Tabanaba is um, been made well-known in Australia uh, for the past 30 years by the Wiggles. The Wiggles do a version of it um, with Christine Anu. And Tabanaba is a very, very common song that um, a lot of families grew up with, a lot of kids learn doing is a sit-down dance. But it was um, amazing to learn the, the origins of the song and um, and in where it comes from. The translation of the song is is basically about going out into the dinghy, going fishing on the reef, which is a very, you know, very tropical thing to do, a very cultural thing to do uh, up there in the Torres Straits. 
It's in the Meriam um, Mera language, which is from the eastern islands of the Torres Straits. But the melody actually comes from um, from an American, uh, an old American tune, uh, more specifically. It's a Tin Pan Alley black minstrel song. And the original tune was actually called Navajo, quite a racist song that was used to make fun of, of, of a Navajo woman and an African-American man uh, falling in love. Uh, and somehow... Never, never, my never ho came over to the Torres Straits and um, Torres Aranda heard it and heard Nava, 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 Norem, which means come, come with me to the reef. And this, this, the song changed from there. You are performing as part of the Sydney Pride. What's the importance, would you say, of performing these songs to a wider audience? In regards to Sydney Pride, I think one of the biggest representations that I, I hope the show brings is, is the Torres Strait community in, in the rainbow community here on the mainland and that a lot of people left their islands or left their, you know, their families to come to the big cities for opportunity. Uh, and I express to also to be themselves, and that's that's something that I want to celebrate as having Island Songs Project at Sydney World Pride is 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 to recognise and, and acknowledge a lot of those um, Torres Strait Islanders that have been a big part of of the um, the queer community in in Sydney and, and all over Australia. And what has your experience been talking about the queer community, um, you know, as a woman, um, as an Indigenous woman, to be part of the LGBTIQ community, maybe growing up and now? A lot of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander families, I, I think, just from our history, is, uh, our missions history especially, this can be quite conservative. Uh, my family was one and, um, yeah, it was kind of, you know, sort of had to learn to separate yourselves from from what we grew up with and, um, yeah, and um, it's been, um, I guess, important part of, 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 of my journey and who I am as, as, as an artist and as well as somebody uh, culturally as well, um, the queer identity. Mm. And that was my next question. How has it shaped who you are and how has it influenced your music? I'm not sure about influenced music. I, I, I guess it's made me um, uh, look outside the box musically. Uh, I feel like I've been focusing a lot of historical songs for a long time and, and sometimes looking back in the past, it is, there's always quite a conservative um, perspective. Working with elders is always kind of a conservative approach. But um, because of my identity, I, I feel like I have a different perspective to always sort of not go with the norm or not always to sort of, yeah, go with the, go with the standard way of things because um, it's just... Um, that's, that's sort of not who I want to be or how I want to approach things. And is there a message you have for others from from that community across the Pacific? Yeah, be proud and um, be brave. The um, it's you know it's and times are changing and um, the world is becoming more of an open place. And um, yeah, just be proud of who you are. That was Jesse Lloyd there speaking to the ABC's Dubrovka Volodya. And do stay tuned if we have time at the end of the show. I'd love to play you one of those songs from Jesse's Island Songs Project. Pacific Beat. 
One of Solomon Island's leading designers will be on a mission to elevate the voices of Melanesians in the fight against climate change after being selected for an American fellowship program. Millicent Barty joins us now on the program. A good morning to you, Millicent. A good fellow morning, Priyanka. Good fellow morning and congratulations. I believe it's the Emerson Collective. That's the name of this fellowship that you're joining. Um, tell us a bit yes. about it. Oh, thank you so much. Um, yeah, so the Emerson Collective um, Fellowship, um, it's an by invitation only fellowship. And I believe this is the first time they've opened up the program to international um, individuals. Um, but yeah, I'm just incredibly uh, stoked to be selected as one of the climate pivoters. So normally they do it by theme. So the theme for this year is um, climate related projects. And basically the program supports each individual um, throughout the year with their bold new projects and ha- sort of help them um, pivot into the climate space. So um, all of us there's 14 of us. Uh, we've never worked in the climate space before, but we're pivoting our work um, oh. into, yeah, <laughs> so in, it's really, really exciting. Yeah, that, that sounds so exciting because you're, Millicent, you're, you're mainly a, a designer and you've done lots of work in Solomon Islands up until now. Um, what is this big project that involves you pivoting to climate change? Um, so for me, um, I'm finally um, doing a long-standing dream of mine. So generally, just through my work and my own personal journey, I've been collecting and archiving our custom stories, so our traditional oral histories. Um, so in my normal work, I leverage our custom storytelling practices in order to translate uh, complex sort of information or systems um, so people can understand and connect with it better. Um, so finally, I'm scaling this to support communities so that they too can start uh, protecting and preserving their traditional knowledges. And yeah, I'm starting a new organization. It's called Custom Keepers. Um, so it's it's been... Um, long, long time in the pipeline for me. So it's finally happening and I'm super excited. I know. And, and I, you know, as you mentioned, um, Millie, this is the first time the Emerson Collective has opened it up, up opened up their um, uh, fellowship internationally. And you've one of, of just, you know, a dozen or so that, that have been selected. What, what is it? What was it like when you got that call? What was that whole process like? How did you feel? Oh, uh, um <laughs> Unbelievable, actually. Um, I, I think, yeah, I was just really shocked, um, I guess, because, um, you know, being from our corner of the world, our very small and remote corner, um, it's not very often we get a lot of these opportunities. Um, so, yeah, just to be selected, uh, the application process was rigorous mm. Um, and the interview, you know, I was shaking all throughout the interview. So by the end of the interview, I was like, oh, I don't think I got it. Um, but yeah, just to have received the email that I've been selected as one, as a climate pivoter, um, it really places so much, um, you know, motivation, but also just a lot of, um, power to know that, you know, someone believes in 
uh, my vision for custom keepers. Uh, they see the value in it. And yeah, I'm truly thankful to, you know, the Emerson Collective for this. Um, and as you mentioned, custom keepers, that's that's your project, um, collecting these stories, collecting indigenous wisdom about the environment. What, why is that important to you? What, what made you come up with this idea? Um, for a few reasons. So I think on a personal level, I've been collecting custom stories since I was a child. Um, I always say, you know, my first teachers in life were, you know, my two grandmothers and my elders in the village. Um, for me, you know, our custom knowledges present a way in which I can answer you know, the five great questions of life, which philosophers such as, you know, Socrates, Plato, and our elders call, you know, who who am I? Where do I come from? Why am I here? Where am I going? And what good do I bring to society? And for me, uh, Custom Stories has helped me sort of navigate all of that and find my own answers. And so I think it's important that, you know, in this day and age, a lot of our young people are missing out on this, you know, beautiful sort of channel to learn about themselves, to sort of help us own our own narratives and, you know, build our self-determination based on who we are. And um, custom stories, um, a lot of our custom knowledges are basically helping us to understand our connections and bond with the environment uh, through the eyes of our ancestors. So it's things like, you know, if you take a fruit from a tree, you must make sure you leave enough for the bird and her family. Or if you disturb the coral reef, you must, you know, replace it with something from land so that, you know, you keep it intact. So it teaches you the fundamental values in life, I believe. And for me, that's the personal sort of reason why it's important. Uh, to collect our indigenous wisdoms. Is now, there a fear for, fear that they sorry? might be? Oh, sorry to interrupt. Is there a fear that no. that that might be lost, Millicent? Those custom stories might not be as 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 told as much as they used to. Yeah. So definitely, the practice of passing down the knowledge um, through oral traditions um, has been lost. Um, so. Yeah, young people are sort of not getting those opportunities anymore and the intergenerational gap is widening. Um, However, I don't believe we can lose Indigenous um, knowledge or wisdom. I feel the only thing we've lost is the way to connect with it. Um, So... That's where I'm at. Um, but yeah, there is <laughs> there is the sort of narrative around that, you know, it is a depleting cultural practice. Um, and, you know, with the climate crisis, especially if we lose our physical land, um, our islands, um, then these stories, because they're so connected to the physical environment, um, they'll be lost forever. So... Yeah. Is part of your um, uh, collective and this fellowship that you're doing with Emerson to, I guess, create those connections with these custom stories in a new way? Will you, uh, are you hoping to put them online, for instance, to hope that it reach a new, reaches a new generation, reaches perhaps farther than it once did? 
Um, yeah, so custom keepers, how I, I've sort of conceptualized it. Um, it has three main activities that's all sort of rooted from connecting people or connections. Um, but the main activity is I want to be setting up these custom keeping hubs in villages and build the capacity and equip young people to be oral historians so that they record and collect their traditional knowledges. And then through a digital platform, um, which I'm still figuring out how it'll all work, um, but it sort of takes inspiration from IP models and publishing platforms. Um, but through that, um, they can sort of upload and sort of preserve their traditional knowledges on the platform. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yes, I, I, I guess those those um, copyright issues, those IP issues, are, are very important when you think about, um, you know, using and, and trying to share um, indigenous knowledge, isn't it? Definitely, definitely. Um, so I'm learning a lot and sort of redesigning as I go along uh, because it's crucial that the ownership um, belongs to the people who. Um, own these stories or these knowledges. And, and it's interesting, Millicent, because, you know, you're using art form, you know, in this case, it's it's storytelling. Um, but I know you're a designer and you've often used your, your art as part of these political, social engagement um, sort of activities. You're part of, for instance, a Get Out, of the, a Get Out the Vote campaign in Solomon Islands, I understand, where you um, sort of designed um, uh, brochures and voter awareness guides. Um, they were then distributed in bags of rice to people around the country. How important is art to you in in social and political awareness? Do you think they go together or is it something that you sometimes find difficult to, to sort of push together? <laughs> um, I, I think um, art, just as much as, you know, science and other fields of knowledge, I think they all play an important role. Um yeah, for me, again, it all comes back down to connections, right? Mm. And everything we're doing, we're connecting with people, uh, helping people connect to a system. Um, so, like, at the end of the day, um, we must just sort of acknowledge and respect people, connect differently to each other, and art as well as, you know, music, for us, um, that's been a long-standing way in which our people connect. Um, so, yeah, as a tool, um, art stands to be incredibly powerful. Um, if people are taught to appreciate and learn from it the same way we are taught to do this with um, modern science. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I, I definitely struggle sometimes to translate a lot of the political pledges and lo mm -hmm. land laws. <laughs> I struggle to translate them into art form. Um, but what I believe and how my work uh, works um, is the fundamental values of each sort of space, uh, we share the same values. So once we are patient enough to understand what these values are, we're able to sort of weave them together um, to help people connect to it better. 
Well, it seems that strategy is working, Millicent, with um, being accepted into this Emerson Collective um, must mark a, a big yeah, success in your career. Um, what's next for you? Um, what, do, what do you have planned for the year that you're with the fellowship and beyond? Um, so, yeah, what's next is literally just getting to work now. Um, as I mentioned, this opportunity with the Emerson Collective is huge support just to springboard um, you know, the custom keepers work. So I'll be identifying two to three pilot areas for the custom keeping activities I have in mind, um, as well as just mapping, mapping out what's on ground and aligning custom keepers to that, um, but yeah, it's yeah, just getting down to work now. <laughs> <laughs> well, all the best. Congratulations yet again, Millicent. Um, yeah, looking forward to see what you produce. Thank you. That was Millicent Barty, the new Emerson Collective fellow there. And that's the end of Pacific Beat. I'll be back same time to prom- tomorrow. Until then, have a lovely day.